this morning will be Acts chapter 8 and verses 1 through 4. Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 4. For context in Acts chapter 7 Stephen has just been stoned to death for proclaiming the Word of God. And now beginning in Acts 8 and verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Good morning. Happy New Year to everybody. I'm glad that you're here this morning and I'm really glad. I know we've got a number of visitors. We're really thankful that you've come our way. Thank you for being a part of our assembly this morning. Reading in sync is going to continue for a little while longer. We mentioned this last Sunday morning, but thought I'd mention it again. The, uh, the sheets for reading in sync have diminished. They're about half the size that they were before. And you might have to get a magnifying glass, at least if you're me, you have to get a magnifying glass to read some of it. But there's a question that we want you to think about as you're reading in sync this week. The question is, as we read the book of James together, the question is, what are some of the benefits and the blessings that James mentions from humbling ourselves and yielding to God's will? And so what I want us to do is as we're thinking about the book of James, when you read chapter one, you're looking for examples of someone humbling themselves or yielding to God's will. And then when you read chapter two, do the same thing. And as you're discussing the book with your family, as you sit down together and, and visit about these things, Think of what are the blessings that God says come from doing that. And James has some surprising examples of blessings that come from yielding to God's will, from humbling ourselves. And so as we read and sync together this coming week, be thinking about that question as you read the book of James. And each week for the next, I don't know, seven or eight weeks, each week that we do this, we're going to have a question that kind of goes along. So the, the program is not new, but this is a little bit different approach uh, than what we were doing before. Just by asking a question, we find some answers that might surprise us, that might enlighten us, that'll help us to know God and appreciate Him more. Ring out the message. If you want to do a great Bible study, read the book of Acts and answer this question. What made the early church so successful? That's a fascinating study. What made those first century Christians so successful? Jesus gave them marching orders. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not believe shall be condemned. Mark chapter 16 verses 15 and 16. And those first century Christians took that commission seriously. They believed with all of their hearts that their mission was to carry the gospel into a lost and dying world. And when you read the book of Acts, you see example after example of Christians who loved their neighbors enough to share the message about Jesus with them. 
and what we need to do today, what we want to do today is emulate that first century church in all the things that pleased God and everything they did that brought honor and glory to God, we want to be like them. As a matter of fact, among churches of Christ, this is what we say. We believe that if we do right now what those people did 2,000 years ago, those Christians, we will be right now what they were. If we'll do now what they did then, we'll be now what they were then. You know what they were? They were the church of Christ, they belonged to Jesus, and they carried the message of Jesus to people who needed to hear it. And maybe some of the evangelistic zeal and fervor that we see in our brethren 2,000 years ago, maybe that needs to be rekindled in our own hearts. As a congregation for 2021, we have selected the theme, the gospel is for all. And there is a lot that we ought to contemplate about the gospel and about our responsibility to share the gospel with those whom we love, with those who are lost. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And I want you to notice especially verse 4 that Kevin read for us just a moment ago. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. The Scripture talks about a scattering of the church. More about that in just a moment. But the Bible goes on to say in Acts 8 verse 4, it's an evangelism passage, a missionary passage if ever there was one. Therefore, those who were scattered, Acts 8 verse 4, went everywhere preaching the Word. This was what they were all about. They went everywhere preaching the Word. And I want you to notice as you think about Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it wasn't just the apostles. In fact, verses 1 through 3 teaches that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem and continued their ministry there. But those who were scattered from Jerusalem had to leave town. They took it as their individual responsibility to preach the Word, to carry the message of the gospel everywhere they went. Let's think about the ancient church and what we learn about them in Acts 8 verses 1 through 4 this morning, how they rang out the message, how they made sure that the gospel was being heard in faraway places, and let's think about how we might be able to emulate them, how we might be able to do what they did. And as I look at Acts 8 verses 1 through 4, I notice that the church was at a time of trial, a time of difficulty. As Kevin mentioned just a moment ago, Stephen had been martyred. He had been put to death because he was proclaiming Christ. And then when you get to Acts 8 verse 1, the Bible describes this situation where there is persecution, where there is difficulty, where there is sorrow. What I want us to do as we think about what that first century church did is ask the question, are we willing as Christians today to do what they did and respond appropriately to changing realities? Respond appropriately to changing realities. Read with me Acts 8 verse 1. Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. I want you to think about the situation as it was in Acts 7. As far as we are aware, there was only one congregation of the church anywhere in the world. From Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 7, there was only one congregation, and it was in the city of Jerusalem. 
And what those people would do is, if you came to Jerusalem, you would learn the gospel. And if you obeyed the gospel, you'd be a part of the church that was there in Jerusalem. And they were listening to the apostles teaching them. And they were growing together. And they were growing in number. Thousands were obeying the gospel. But there was only, as far as we know, one congregation. And so in these Christians' experience, in their understanding of things, this was the way Christianity worked. There was one congregation, the apostles were doing the teaching, and people were believing and obeying, and men like Stephen and, and P, uh, Philip and others, they were, they were learning the gospel, and they were becoming capable preachers in their own right, and this was what God wanted the church to be. But now, in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, there's a changing reality. Now there's a great persecution that arises, according to chapter 8 and verse 1. Paul the apostle, years later, as he was recounting what happened in his life in this period, he says in Acts chapter 26, verse 11, I, Paul, was in a raging fury as I persecuted the people of God. So it wasn't just that people said, oh, you don't need to listen to Christ. It wasn't just that. There was a rage. There was a continual anger at the church on the part of Paul and others who did not like the fact that they were proclaiming Christ. It goes on to say in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, that many in the church were being taken to prison. These were Christians. They had obeyed the gospel, but people were taking them to prison because of their faith. And Paul even says that some of these church members, when they were voted on to be put to death, Paul says, I cast my vote in the favor of putting them to death, Acts 26, verse 10. And so what the church experienced in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, at the hands of Paul and others was a time of great difficulty, a time of great persecution. Stephen had been stoned and left for dead, put to death. They were experiencing a time of great trial. And I want you to notice as you look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, there were some great responses. Three responses in particular that you notice. In the first place, there was grieving. I don't think it should be overlooked. As we talk about evangelism, as we talk about the greatness of carrying the gospel into all the world, it shouldn't be overlooked that the church was really hurting. In Acts chapter 8, verse 2, the Bible says, devout men carried Stephen to his burial, and they made great lamentation over him. That is to say, they were missing Stephen. They missed their friend. They missed their brother. They missed the relationship that they enjoyed with Stephen. Great lamentation, great sorrow. They were grieving over him. Paul wrote to Christians later on that we are to grieve when someone passes from this life, but we're not to grieve as those who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. But they grieved nonetheless because of the changing circumstances. Not only that, but there was a scattering. It's mentioned twice in this passage, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. In other words, what was happening was some of the church members decided that the kitchen was getting too hot. Some of our brethren are being cast into prison. Some are being put to death. We're going to leave Jerusalem. We're going to go elsewhere. They made that decision. We're going to have to respond to this changing reality. We're going to have to move out of Jerusalem and go elsewhere. And so there's a scattering that takes place of necessity because of the trial that they found themselves a part of. 
And then the third response, there was a proclaiming. Those who were scattered went everywhere proclaiming, preaching the word. As we think about brothers and sisters and friends, the first century church and how they responded to changing realities, they didn't minimize their trials. They didn't act like they weren't serious. They didn't act like they didn't need Stephen. They were genuinely heartbroken over what had happened. And yet there was a determination in their hearts to keep on preaching the message that Stephen had preached, that the apostles were preaching, that Christ had preached. They knew that their responsibility was to carry the gospel into a lost and dying world. Do we? Is that something that we're committed to doing as a Christian, as a congregation? Is that something that we want to emphasize more, the proclaiming of Christ wherever we go? Some things to think about. As you look at verses 1 through 4, God opens some doors even in challenging times. Even in times when our reality has changed when things are different than they used to be. Even in those times, God is faithful and he opened doors for his people, didn't he? Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul asked his brethren to pray that there might be open doors for the gospel. One of the things that Christians today need to do is to think about open doors and new opportunities that God might be making available if we'll just look for them. Secondly, as we think about the example of the early church, we must, I'm talking to us here in Katy, we must be very, very careful about becoming self-absorbed, about becoming self-focused, about becoming selfish. When somebody hurts, you're hammering that nail and you miss the nail and smash your finger, nothing else, nothing else matters except my finger and the fact that I hurt. And the way I treat people and the way I act, none of it matters. I don't think about anybody else. I think about me and the fact that I smashed my finger with a hammer. Sometimes that's what happens to us when we go through struggles and trials. We think about what's hurting us, what's causing us pain, what's causing us worry. We think about ourselves and we forget that there are opportunities all around us if we'll just open our eyes. The first century church, our brethren, faced a time of trial of going to prison and even giving their lives for the gospel, and they kept their eye on the ball. We are commissioned by Jesus to carry the gospel to people. And we are failing in our mission if we don't continue to proclaim his message to people who need to hear it. We are to respond appropriately to changing realities. Circumstances are always going to change, but the gospel never does. It is God's power to save, Romans 1, verse 16. If we want to emulate the ancient church, if we want to be successful in our mission to proclaim God's word, we must as a congregation respond appropriately to changing realities. Secondly, as you look at Acts 8, verses 1 through 4, another consideration. If we're going to be like the ancient church, we must remember the responsibility that we have of proclaiming the gospel. Jesus gave it to us. And when you stop and think about what it means to proclaim the gospel and why it needs to be preached and why people need to hear it, what about the value of a soul? Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Have we forgotten that? 
In Matthew 16, verse 26, and in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to save people because people are in danger and their souls are precious and the soul is the part of you that's going to live forever. It's going to go on and on and on without end and you're going to spend eternity somewhere. The value of a soul means that we have a responsibility to talk to people about their souls. Not only that, the awfulness of sin, the fact that sin tears apart the very fabric of everything that's good. The fact that sin is going to cost people their souls, John 3, 16, they will perish if they die in sin. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, taking vengeance on those who know not God or who do not obey the gospel because of their sin. A realization of the value of people's souls and the awfulness of sin and the reality of eternity. We're going to live somewhere forever. There is, for those who are righteous, laid up in, in heaven, a place that is incorruptible and undefiled. There is a reward. But we also need to remember that this world, this one that we're living in right now, this is not our home. We're just a passing through. We're strangers and pilgrims here, 1 Peter 2, verse 11. The responsibility of proclaiming the gospel means that we take these principles, these truths, seriously. That if anybody's going to be saved, the only way they're going to find salvation is in Christ. The only way they're going to find salvation is through the blood that Jesus shed at the cross for them. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. The responsibility of proclaiming the gospel. Brothers and sisters and friends, here are some questions to think about when it comes to our responsibility to proclaim the gospel here in Katy. Question number one, if we will not tell others, who will? If we're not going to tell others, who's going to? Oh, but Brother John, there's plenty of information on the internet. There are plenty of people out there who are proclaiming the gospel. I'm glad that there are people that are doing that, but you have a sphere of influence and so do I. You have people in your life that are never going to search the internet asking questions like, who is Jesus and what must I do to respond to him in faith? There are people in your sphere of influence and if you don't tell them, who's going to? Proverbs chapter 11 verse 30 says, he who wins souls is wise. Second question, if we're not praying for the lost, who is? You've got people in your sphere of influence that you know are not right with God. You know their names, you know their situations, you have relationships with people that nobody else in this room has. If you're not going to pray for them, who will? Jesus said, lift up your eyes to the harvest and pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send out laborers. And maybe the first laborer that needs to go out into the harvest is you and me. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. A third question to reflect on. When it comes to the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel, if the love of Christ does not motivate us, what will? If a love for Christ and the love that he has shown in our lives, if that's not going to be a motivating factor to share with others, if that doesn't mean anything to us, if that's not something that we're concerned about or that we're concerned about sharing with others, what is going to motivate us? 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ compels us, constrains us. We believe 
that what Jesus did matters. God's laid the gospel in our hands. He's given us the responsibility. If we want to be like the first century church, we need to take seriously the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel. Third, this morning, as you look at Acts 8, verses 1 through 4, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Think about this. I believe all of us need to reflect more. You want to be a better evangelist? You want to be better at reaching people in your sphere of influence? Listen up. This point is for you. Reflect more on the content of the gospel. Brother John, if, if, if I were to talk to somebody about the gospel, I, I really don't know what I would say. I really don't know where to start. I mean, I have some discussions with people that are in my life, friends, neighbors, people in the office. I have some, some spiritual conversations, but I just don't feel like I'm really getting the message across that needs to be received. A couple of things to reflect on. The content of the gospel, what does it mean? Ring the message out. The gospel is for all. What are we talking about when we talk about the gospel? In the first place, before I give you the components of the gospel, I want you to know that the gospel deals with matters of great importance. There are a lot of religious discussions that devolve into minutia and trivialities and silly questions. And we go into our Bibles and because the Bible might obliquely say something about some of these questions. We try to find the answers, but I want us to keep our minds and our hearts focused on the fact that when we talk about the gospel message, we're talking about matters of great importance, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, eternity, and Jesus Christ being the solution to all of that. Those are weighty, important matters. Jesus condemned the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, verse 42, because they were so involved with the minutia of how much of my spices should I give that they had neglected weightier matters like love and justice. Jesus says, you should have done these things without leaving the others undone. In other words, everything God has to say matters. Everything that God's word touches on is significant and we ought to pay attention to it. But there are some things, people's souls being saved, for example, that really ought to come first, that really ought to be where our focus and our emphasis is before we devolve in our conversations into trivialities and minor things. All right, having said that, let's look at Acts chapter 8. You got your Bible? Open it there if you haven't already. In Acts chapter 8, I want you to notice that the gospel that was proclaimed by the first century church consisted of three things. Number one, facts to be believed. When our brethren went around proclaiming the gospel 2,000 years ago, they spent time talking about some facts, past tense, historical stuff, things that God had done, things that God had said, things that God had made happen, and how that was relevant to their lives, facts to be believed. And so Philip, the evangelist, in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, when he went down to Samaria, look at what he did. He preached Christ to them. He talked to them about who Jesus was and about what Jesus had done and the facts of his ministry and the facts of his sacrifice. But not just that. Look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. Everybody see it? Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Philip preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. 
So what's Philip preaching as he goes around to these villages in Samaria? He's talking about facts. God has sent a savior. God has established a kingdom and people can be a part of that kingdom. These are facts that need to be believed. In Acts chapter 8, verse 35, the same man, Philip, when he gets into the chariot with the Ethiopian nobleman, he asks him if he understands what he's reading. He says, how can I? And so the Bible says in Acts 8, verse 35, that Philip opened his mouth, beginning at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. Brothers and sisters and friends, the gospel is a message that deals with facts, historical facts, meaningful facts, things that Jesus has said and done, and what that means for our lives. And we ought to ask ourselves the question as we think about people in our sphere of influence, what facts do people need to know that maybe they're not aware of or haven't thought about? You want to be a better evangelist? What facts do I need to give to people when it, when it comes to who Jesus is? And I think sometimes we kind of assume that people already know the facts when maybe they haven't opened a Bible ever, if not in a long time. Secondly, when we think about the gospel, it's not just facts that are to be believed, but it also deals with commands to be obeyed. Look again at Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. What did Philip the evangelist do? He preached about the kingdom. He preached about Jesus. And the Bible says both men and women were baptized. Somehow, Philip, in preaching the gospel, connected those facts about Jesus and the kingdom with baptism for the remission of sins. And people heard and they understood and they said, all right, I want to take God up on his offer of the new covenant. I want to obey and be a part of this new covenant. What must I do to be saved? And baptism was the answer. You look at Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 39, commands to be obeyed. In verse 36, they went down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And they went down the water, and the Ethiopian nobleman came up out of the water, and the Bible says he rejoiced. Why? Because not only did he understand the facts about the gospel, but he understood the commands. What does God expect of me? What does he challenge me to do? If I would accept his offer of grace and the preciousness of salvation by his son, Jesus Christ, what commands must I respond to? And third, as we reflect on the content of the gospel, promises to be enjoyed. In Acts chapter 8, verse 39, the Bible says that the Ethiopian eunuch saw Philip no more, but went on his way rejoicing. God says, if I'll believe the facts, if I'll respond in obedient faith to the commands, that I can enjoy certain promises. Things like forgiveness of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. Things like fellowship with those of like precious faith, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Things like the providence of God at work in our lives to make us more like Christ, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. There are promises that God has made to people, and those promises are part of the gospel. Now, as I've said all this, let me cause you some, give you some reasons for, for thinking about this more. In our presentations evangelistically, typically, we zero in on the commands. 
we zero in on the question, what must I do to be saved? And that is certainly an essential part of the gospel, but there is more to the gospel than just the question, what must I do to be saved? You understand? What must I do to be saved and how I need to respond to God is essential, but there are some facts that must be believed and understood and appreciated if I really know what the gospel is all about. And not only that, there are promises to be enjoyed. If I obey the gospel, what is the result? And now here's something to really think about. The reason why people obey the gospel is because they believe of what God has done. They believe in the historical reality of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And it is because they want to embrace and enjoy the promises that God makes. And oftentimes in our presentations of the gospel, we talk about the commands. We may give just a little bit of attention to the facts and we say almost nothing about the promises that God makes to those who obey. Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, there needs to be balance because that's what you see the first century church doing in their presentation of the gospel. They talked about Jesus. They talked about the facts, the commands, and the promises. And the reason why the Ethiopian nobleman rejoiced was because he realized that those promises belonged to him, that salvation and a relationship with God and his people, those things were his because he obeyed the gospel and because of what God had done for him. You want to be a better evangelist? Ask yourself the question, the people in my sphere of influence, the people in my arena of life, what facts do they need to be aware of? What commands do we need to talk about? What must I do to be saved? And maybe just maybe, what promises has God made that really haven't been appreciated or understood? It'll help us be better evangelists if we'll think about the gospel and what comprises the gospel. Because God has given his gospel into our hands and he's challenged all of us to ring out that message wherever we go. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond to the gospel because you understand what Jesus has done for you and you're ready to repent of your sin because that's the command that God gives and you're ready to be baptized for the remission of your sins because that's the command that God has made because you want to enjoy what Acts 2 verse 38 promises. You shall receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're ready to make that commitment this morning, or if we can respond, help you by, by praying for you, if you're ready to, if you'd like to ask for prayers, whatever your need, won't you respond to heaven's invitation this morning while together we stand and while we sing.